Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with reporters Riley Snyder and Michelle Rundells about the results of last week's special session and when they expect to see a second special session take place. After that, we hear from the Indies education reporter Jackie Valley about the plans to go back to school and what she's heard from teachers and parents. At the end of the show, Tabitha Mueller and I have a few book recommendations for our listeners in our Indie Reads segment. But now, before we get to the rest of our show, I spoke to our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly about where things stand regarding the coronavirus. Okay, so first things first, Megan, let's break down some of the numbers for this week. Now, Vegas and Nevada have become a bit of a hotspot over the last couple of weeks. Can you break down what they look like as of today, uh, July 23rd at about 3.30 p.m.? Yeah, so as of where we're at right now, we're just sitting a little bit shy of 40,000 cases. We're at 39,919 cases statewide and about 709 deaths. Uh, The big thing that we saw this week was a significant increase in deaths. Uh, We saw just in Clark County alone uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, there were 50 new deaths reported. It's worth mentioning that in the days uh, prior to that, there had been a very small number of cases reported. And then today, Thursday, when we're recording, Clark County only reported three new deaths. So you have to keep in mind that sometimes this data all rolls in at once. So it's better to look at it averaged over time. But even looking at that average, this is still um, the the highest average, uh, seven-day average death rate that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, State officials today on a a press call uh, were talking about that and said this is essentially um, the result of infections that happened five weeks ago. If you think about the time that it takes for someone to get infected, uh, to fall ill, to get tested, to end up in the hospital, and then to eventually pass away from the illness, it kind of takes um, quite a while. So really what we're seeing right now is a re- result of infections that happened in sort of mid to late June, um, which in some ways is, is uh, people are pointing to as indicative of the fact that that's when we started to see cases rising. I think there's some hope that the statewide mask order that was implemented will at least lead to a leveling off of, of cases and eventually death but we're really just starting to see the, the beginning of this. So it's hard to know really where we're, we're going from here because this is a pretty recent phenomenon and you really need a couple weeks of data to be able to say anything conclusively. So to that end, say, so if someone's looking at all the numbers, an event like 4th of July is not necessarily captured in this kind of data yet, right? Yeah, so that's one of the things the state officials are, are looking at. So you wouldn't see um, 4th of July infections captured in this death data. Uh, you might start to see it, um, and state officials had said we would start to be seeing it um, in the case data because the case data is people who are just getting sick and getting infected. So that happens a little bit more quickly. If you're going to fall ill enough to be in the hospital, that takes a little bit longer. So we could be starting to see some of that in, in the case data, um, which obviously we're still sort of at a, at a high level um, over the last couple of days has sort of been fluctuating at this this high point, um, not necessarily like sharply increasing. So it's going to be kind of hard to tell where where we're going from here. There's also some um, concern that this might have been the time that we would have started seeing the benefits of that mask order going into effect, but that that might be being canceled out by any 4th of July infection. So it's really hard for state officials to know what's going on and really know, you know, why are the numbers going up or down or um, staying at sort of this high point. 
Okay, so regionally speaking, Nevada is one of a cluster of states in the south and in the west that have these high uh, case numbers and increasing hospitalizations and death rates. Um, And so with all that, the White House had some recommendations this week, and there were 11 cities that were contacted by the White House that basically said, you have to change something or things are going to get really bad. Vegas was among those cities. Can you dig into that a bit? Yeah. So if you look at the state level data um, and you break things out by county, you can see that Clark County, um, in addition to just being the biggest county and sort of, you know, you'd expect to see um, a large number of cases there just by population. But if you actually um, dig into the numbers, you can see that the cases in Clark County are actually rising um, more quickly than they are in, say, say Washoe County, which is, you know, also urban, but is one of the counties that the White House had previously listed as sort of a yellow county, whereas Clark County was, was a red county. So we've we've known that things were worse in Las Vegas than in Washoe and some of the other rural counties um, for for a bit now. I think the question on everyone's mind is what what are we going to do about it, right? We haven't um, seen any more substantive action from the governor um, beyond his move to close bars and make some changes to dining requirements um, now a couple of weeks ago. So now we're just waiting to sort of see what's next. Do we start to see some benefit from this mask order uh, kick into effect or do cases keep going up and some sort of further action is necessary? And I think we're all just waiting to see what the answer to that question is. I see. So, and a lot of stuff is wait and see now. As this week, we saw uh, uh, K through twelve school districts start to look at whether or not they should reopen schools, and the answer being no. And then today, the the higher education system mulling that question themselves. Um, but lots of stuff is still open. We should mention uh, gyms are still open. Uh, it's really just the bars and live events that have been closed. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. The the big change was um, bars being closed, and then there were some restrictions on dining. So you can only have a party of up to six people um, dining, whether it's indoor or outdoor. But interestingly, in the the White House report that had come out last week, um, declaring the red and yellow zone counties, it recommended you know significant limiting of capacity in in gyms or um, sort of closing gyms altogether, depending on where you were. Uh, and we haven't seen any changes to, you know, protocols for for gyms or some other states have uh, made efforts to close indoor dining, but still allow outdoor dining. And, and both are still currently allowed here in Nevada. So uh, there's certainly a number of different things that the state um, could try. It's just a matter of, you know, what policies do we see coming and when? Okay. Well, if you are at all interested in the data or want to keep track of the numbers, you can follow Megan Messerly on Twitter, where she tweets out daily updates every day. And you can check out our data page on the NevadaIndependent.com. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I am joined now by reporters Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells, who were diligently covering the special session for us the last 12 days. But it's over. They seem to have solved the pro- all, the, all the problems in Nevada. And so, you know, I guess first things first, Michelle and Riley, just kind of why did we have this special session in the first place? I'll start. So there's a little thing called the COVID-19 pandemic that has kind of uh, been a big deal both here and nationwide. But in all mm-hmm. seriousness... Nevada's economy is largely based on sales tax, gaming, tourism, and all those things have taken a huge hit during the pandemic, the non-essential business shutdown. And so the state's tax revenues were way below what they initially had projected and approved during the initial um, budget setting process in 2019. Nevada's legislature meets every two years. They set a budget for two years 
Obviously, it's hard and there's a lot of adjustments they have to make along the way. But it turned out that expected tax revenues were about 75% of what they had approved for this current fiscal year budget. The fiscal year runs from July 1st to the end of June. So they met shortly after July to try to get the 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 expenditures the state is making the same as the revenue. Nevada has a balanced budget constitutional requirement. We can't deficit spend. We're not Congress. So we have to make sure that you know we're not in the red going into a new fiscal year. So that was kind of the point of the special session was to figure out how on earth are we going to make you know these cuts, which worked out to be about $1.2 billion of the state's budget, which is about $4.4 billion. So pretty substantial. It affected basically every area of the state from K through 12 education, health and human services, construction projects, road construction. So almost everything was affected by this. And a lot of the discussion was like, are there changes with that? The legislature wanted to make to what the governor had recommended. What kind of changes would that look like? I think in total about six of the budget cuts were changed, reversed in some manner or another. And that's kind of what took so long was figuring out that whole budget process. Okay. And so what are some of those major cuts that happened yet? I mean, obviously, like you said, everything has taken a hit, but what are some of the biggest, biggest hits and biggest cuts that they made? Some of the top lines are that they ended up cutting the Read by Three program. This is a $31 million program that helps support kids who are struggling reading at grade level to get up to speed. That was a big initiative that started in 2015, and basically they had to zero it out. They also erased essentially $70 million out of a program of weighted funding. So that's when schools get an additional $1,200 per student for kids that are free or reduced lunch eligible, or they're performing in the lowest 25% of their grade level. So it would give extra money to the school to try to get people to help them. That was zeroed out. We saw the cancellation of a project to build the UNLV engineering building. We saw various across the board cuts to the Nevada system of higher education. We saw the cancellation of certain programs, such as additional funding for services for children with autism. There was also, there's going to be a new surcharge that students in the Nevada system of higher education are going to have to pay. For normal four-year schools, it's going to be another $6 per credit, so about $90 a semester additional that students are going to be paying to kind of cover this shortfall. Any other ones that you want to mention, Ryan? There were a lot of cuts to health and human services budget areas, and our colleague Megan has delved into those very specifically. But one of the biggest ones that wasn't restored was a Medicaid reimbursement rate. So it was kind of the state's share of what they paid for hospitals and other providers um, to take patients on Medicaid. In 2019, the legislature upped that amount by 6%, and that had, that's been cut from the state's budget for this year. They've included language in there that will like allow that to be filled back if there is some kind of federal bailout along the way, but that was a big one and that's one that I think a lot of the hospitals were upset about. And that's an important thing because not every doctor in the in the state in the country accepts Medicaid, which you know, there's 700,000 Nevadans that are covered by this government paid insurance, but not every doctor accepts it. So, let's say you want to go to the eye doctor and they just don't accept Medicaid, you, you are, are limited now in who you could have be your doctor. So the concern is maybe that by lowering the amount the state is paying for any given services in the Medicaid program, it's going to make it harder for Medicaid um, clients to really get 
easy access to the services that they need. That might mean more waiting lists um, or just being out of network for certain things. So that could be a potential problem. The other important one was furloughs for state employees. Initially, the proposal was that every state employee would essentially take one unpaid day off per month. Through the budgeting process, they ended up having that. So it's now six furlough days per year. So they ended up kind of getting a better deal than originally was proposed by only having six furlough days. So that's essentially a 2.5% pay cut. And the other thing the legislature did was there were some proposals to do uh, some layoffs, not a whole lot, and, and eliminate some vacant positions. And the layoffs, at least, were averted. So we've got all of these cuts, like you, you just went through a ton of them. There's a ton of cuts. There is no revenue raised. There's no new taxes. There's no shifting of how taxes are going to be collected. So can you talk about that? I know there was a lot of drama kind of around the revenue question. Well, there was one shift that kind of got lost as the special session went on, but Nevada has a thing called the government governmental services tax. It's assessed on car registration. It's supposed to go to the state's highway fund, which is like just a state fund for road construction, road repairs, stuff like that. In the past, the state has used that to kind of like backfill budget gaps. The Governor Sisolak's initial budget proposal called for that to be a 50-50 split between the state's like general budget fund, where all the stuff we're talking about, K-12, through health and human services goes, and the highway fund, again, road construction, all that stuff. The legislature doubled down, and now all of that for this fiscal year is going to the general fund. So that freed up, I think, 40 to $50 million. So that was a substantial area of savings. But I think what Michelle was talking about was this whole mining tax proposal, which was its own little mini saga within the 12-day saga of the special session. Essentially, on a very slow day during the special session, again, like there weren't any public meetings, we got wind that there was going to be a proposal brought forward that would remove the amount of deductions that mining tax companies can pay. Mining taxes, the net proceeds of minerals tax is a very complicated subject. We don't want to get too far in the details. Essentially, there's like a constitutional limit on how much they can be taxed, but they have this area of like 12 to 18 deductions they can take against what they have to pay on their tax. It's like for things like machinery costs like that, that are kind of incurred in the cost of doing business. It's a proposal that was brought up in 2011, but didn't really make a lot of progress at the time. But Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson and other legislative Democrats decided to try to push this to see if they could raise some additional revenue. Just a side note on that, mining in 2019 made $7.8 billion in gross revenue. Um, after they subtracted all the deductions they can take for all the costs of doing business, that left them with a net of $2.5 billion, and that's what they can be taxed on. And the state only got $61 million in taxes from that whole calculation. So there's groups that say mining needs to pay more than $61 million a year when gold is $1,800 an ounce. Um, and we're the world's largest gold producer and these Canadian companies like uh, the new Nevada gold mines merged Barrick and Newmont company. I mean, they're, they're an out of country corporation and people think they need to be paying more. We're the fifth largest producer of gold in the world. We're the largest uh, producer in the U.S. and the US. Fifth, if we are compared against countries like China and Russia. Yeah. So we've got, you know, kind of this shifting of, of some stuff from the highway fund to the general fund. And then there wasn't any increase in mining, which was talked about and kind of hotly debated until 3 a.m. one night, I remember. 
So there's there's no winners and losers in, in something like this, but what, what budget areas um, in the state kind of got more cuts than was expected and which ones maybe didn't take as big of a hit? The Nevada system of higher education kind of got, I think, like maybe the worst. The way the budget was kind of presented to lawmakers was they broke it up into four areas. There was K through 12 education, so normal public charter elementary schools, all that. There was colleges, Nevada system of higher education. There was health and human services, and there was capital improvement projects, which is public works, buildings, roads, maintenance, construction, and all that. Combined, those make up, I think, like 80 to 85% of the state budget. So those were kind of the biggest areas. And almost all of them had something added back or some changes made, or they kept some things whole. Like in K-12 education, the what's called the distributed school account, that's like the per-pupil um, funding that the state gives. So, you know, how many dollars they get per student that was kept whole that was big for both the governor and for legislative democrats to keep that whole even while other categorical programs like read by three or other things like that were cut but NG had i think a 110 million dollar budget cut initially and then to kind of free up some more dollars to move around they were recommended for another 25 million dollar cut and that was kind of added back in the last two days of the legislative session so that gave lawmakers an ability to like kind of add back some of the things they wanted to do like in health and human services what michelle talked about earlier with the state worker furlough reductions but that i think boiled out to like a 3.9 additional increase in the budget cuts that the, the the states universities and colleges have to take part of that is being covered through a reserve account that the college administration system, Nevada system of higher education has on hand, but they all um, submitted this report. And I did a story on this during the special session of what it would do. It's a lot of like proposed layoffs, vacant positions, things like that, deferred maintenance. And this is on top again of the $110 million they proposed initially. So I think system wide, it's like between 18 to 20% of all of these um, colleges and universities, budgets were cut. And we heard a lot of complaints and testimony during the budget hearings about this from people at UNLV, from community colleges who just say, you know, the same thing happened in 2008 where we got a huge haircut, we still haven't really recovered, and now we're getting our budget cut by a fifth again. One of the interesting points that Senator Julia Ratty brought up during one of these hearings, as we heard commenter after commenter call in on the phone lines and testify against these budget cuts to Enchi, is that we don't hear a lot from the people who are receiving Medicaid and that are like really living on the edge. So while we did hear a lot of people talking about the higher education budget cuts, we didn't really hear a lot of people calling in that said, I'm personally a Medicaid recipient um, and you cutting off my healthcare or reducing the benefits in some way is going to hurt me. And and she said, that's because people are really just trying to survive when you're kind of in in some of the lower income brackets Mm -hmm. um, and and you don't have a lot of time to follow what's going on in a special session and, and what are they cutting out from under me. So we, we've kind of gone through all of these, you know, I, I, I topic areas and discussed, you know, how something is being cut or how it's maybe not taking as big of a cut. What is the overall kind of mood now that it is over? We were supposed to have a special session or another special session immediately after this one to address um, some other topic areas that the legislature and the governor wanted to tackle, including things like police reform. The governor kind of 
put them on timeout, it kind of seems like. Can you kind of explain what happened there? We were supposed to have a second one. It seems like it's going to be a couple of weeks before we have another special session. Well, I think uh, the special session was longer than I think most people expected it to be. Of course, we never know going into a special session how long it's going to last. They don't have a specific time limit. But this one lasted for 12 days, which is as long of a session as we've had since 2003. Is that Mm -hmm. right? So it really went on for quite a while. And here we are in the midst of the pandemic and the cases are rising. This is taking up a lot of oxygen that the governor really needs kind of to be responding to the health crisis. Keep in mind, his his staff is really pretty small. And, and, you know, they're working on both of these issues simultaneously, trying to figure out what's going on with the session and what's going on with deals, and then trying to figure out what needs to be done to respond to this health crisis. So I think that was the cited reason for not calling another session immediately after and having another days, maybe even weeks of legislatures in this building in Carson City. The other concern is that it's just not super healthy to have all these people in the building, even though there were few press, the staff was cut, you know, there were no lobbyists or the members of the public that were allowed in the building. You're still getting lawmakers interacting a lot. There was still concerns that they were going to spread COVID amongst themselves and, and that would cause some chaos. So, so that was another reason that he didn't want people just kind of sitting in, in there in, in a Petri dish. Uh, and the other thing is I think, we saw through this special session that perhaps the cake was not fully baked before we went into it. They didn't really have a good sense of what they wanted to cut and what they wanted to add back and what they were going to do for a potential revenue increase. And that's, I think, why it took 12 days is, is maybe things were just, there were just a lot of negotiations that maybe could have happened ahead of time. So I think the idea is that lawmakers take a step back, kind of figure things out before you come back to Carson City and everyone's here so that we can move things along more quickly if we call a second special session. But I think we're feeling a lot of pressure from a lot of the advocacy groups that are not happy that we're not here in Carson City meeting this week and dealing with issues like uh, expanding mail-in voting or banning chokeholds, you know, stuff like that. So we're seeing a lot of press releases and an advocacy towards calling that special session sooner rather than later. What was the mood kind of between the legislative bodies, between the assembly and the Senate? You know, how is, how is the Democrats and the Republicans feeling kind of after the budget passed? It was a sad combination of like sadness and anger over the last couple of days. The final budget bill passed um, unanimously out of the Senate and with only five or six no votes on the assembly side. This happened after they decided to allocate $50 million in federal CARES Act money towards schools and to like help support distance learning. So that was a big thing for Republicans who were upset that Democrats added all this money back to Health and Human Services, but didn't really touch or talk about K-12 through education. I think in the final like scheme of things, uh, K-12 through education funding actually went down under the uh, legislature's proposal compared to the governor's. They added back a few programs, but they also cut money from GATE. So overall dollars were, were down on the K through 12 education side. But overall, like no one really runs to cut the budget by a quarter. So there was a lot of people, you know, not feeling super great about cutting all these programs that obviously mean a lot and have a big impact on people's lives. But the scary thing to me is like this budget, it's just a bridge. It's just a temporary thing. It's to get us through this fiscal year. We've kind of used like every trick and every couch cushion and every idea we had to kind of try to balance the budget without hurting people. But 
these lawmakers or there'll be a, a different set of them after the election, they're going to have to come back in 2021 and they're going to have to set a budget for two years. And if this pandemic is still going, if businesses are still partially closed, if the demand isn't there, this is just going to continue and it's going to get worse. And I think that's what a lot of them are really concerned about is figuring out that budget process um, for the next two year cycle. And there's a lot of uh, legislators really looking to the federal government we saw that the, the one thing that I think people could sort of feel good about at the end of it was taking some of Nevada's, Nevada has about $250 million of unspent money from the CARES Act from the federal government, and we ended up putting that towards distance learning. So they have to spend it before the end of the year, but this will potentially allow them to get kids connected to the internet before they're going into, for many of them, all online classes starting in, in the fall. And it will hopefully provide some extra academic supports for the kids that are really vulnerable for just falling off the academic wagon through this whole transition to distance learning. Keep in mind, it's only $50 million in, in a state with uh, half a million children that are students that only goes so far. There was also a resolution that the lawmakers passed asking Congress to pass another stimulus package because that is kind of one of the few things that they're looking towards that could possibly um, save them from just having to cut, cut, cut because our revenues are just not rebounding. We're seeing rebounding cases, tourism not coming back terribly quickly. So I think we're just looking towards Washington, D.C., hoping that they can sort of bail us out. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for kind of breaking all of that down. I know that was a lot and there's a lot of uh, cuts and everything, but hopefully the next special session will be a little bit simpler to cover um, and we look forward to hearing your reporting. Thanks so much, Joey. Thanks, Joey. All right. And so I am here with our education reporter, Jackie Valley. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion about education in the last couple of weeks with the coronavirus and um, President Trump calling for students to go back to school and a lot of states kind of being unsure where they're at. Uh, there's been some school board meetings and then there's also been some drama with the Clark County superintendent. So Jackie, you kind of want to tell us, are, is Clark County going back to school, I guess, is the first thing. So yes, they're going back to school, but not in the classroom. They are doing distance learning for at least the beginning of the school year. There's no firm date set for them physically going back to school in person. It's sort of a wait and see mode. The board finally last night after several very long and contentious meetings finally made that decision. And so teachers, staff members, they'll do some professional development that's front loaded onto the beginning of the school year in August. The kids will start August 24th. And then the board will look at the dynamics about every 30 days or so before making any decision about moving back to a more normal in-person schedule. So on the 24th, they'll be starting the online classes like they've been doing in the past. Yeah, although educators are trying to make the distinction that what we're doing now for distance learning is not what we were doing in the spring. Some have characterized the spring as crisis learning because everyone was thrown into it last minute. It was unprecedented. No one had a plan, so they were trying to figure things out on the fly. This time, you know, there's more planning going into it and, you know, best efforts made to make it look and feel like 
school with actual learning happening on a daily basis. So, you know, obviously we'll have to see how that actually pans out come August 24th. But last night, the Clark County Deputy Superintendent, Brenda Larson Mitchell, rattled off a whole list of things that they're already discussing for virtual learning in terms of virtual office hours, meet virtual classes, both live face-to-face, others that may be recorded that students can watch, wellness checks conducted with certain students, because that's another big component of this. You know, part of school's responsibility nowadays is uh, kids' well-being. There's been a lot of fears about their mental health during this period. So it was good to hear that aspect of it mentioned last night as well. Yeah. And they talked all about how the, you know, the teachers are responding to wanting to go back to school or, or not wanting to go back to school. Yeah. So, I mean, this debate has really been raging almost all summer. I, I think we're starting to see the dominoes fall last week. LA Unified School District in Los Angeles announced that they were going to online learning for the beginning of the school year. That's the second largest district in the country. Clark County followed suit this week. I think Baltimore County and Maryland's doing the same. I, Seattle public schools, I think, are heading that direction. There's a whole list now. Educators, too. I think we were seeing more and more unease among them about going back and what does social distancing actually look like in a school? How is that actually possible with some of the little ones and so on and so forth? The Clark County Education Association, which is the largest union, the one that has the negotiating power, they did an internal survey and said earlier this week that I think it was 74% of teachers favored distance education. You know, the, I think the bottom line with all this is there's not going to be a perfect plan that suits everyone. That's been mentioned time and time again. You know, I'm sure many educators are happy to not be going person to person or face to face, but you're going to have parents who are seeing this as, a, as another struggle, trying to deal with childcare and learning at the same time while working full-time jobs and whatnot. So it doesn't solve really some of these logistical issues, but with the rising number of COVID cases here locally, it just seemed like the writing was on the wall that this is inevitable for the beginning of the school year. Yeah. And I remember we had a we had an opinion piece this week by uh, David Huggins, who's a social study teacher in Vegas, about, you know, not wanting to, being worried about his own safety uh, going back to school. Yeah, I read um, that. And I think that, you know, he, he echoed a lot of the points I've heard others make too. There was just a lot of uncertainties and the district, you know, I don't know if it's to their fault or probably not, but there's a lot of questions that haven't really been answered. For instance, when they were discussing the hybrid model a couple of weeks ago, which would have had students in person two days a week and working from home three other days in a cohort situation, mm-hmm. all going back and forth. There wasn't really a clear answer for how contact tracing would work, how quarantine would work, like if a kid or a teacher is exposed or test positive, well, what does that mean for the rest of the class or the teacher? So, you know, I think there was, that was adding to like the growing unease as we saw these cases multiply and not necessarily answers for how to deal with all that. Yeah. And then just shifting a little bit, there's been kind of this drama on top of all of this with the Clark County Superintendent Jesus Jara, um, kind of there, during the special session, there was a spat between him and, and the governor, Steve Sisolak. And now you saw there were various education associations um, and unions kind of either backing him or, or, or not backing him. So you kind of want to go into what's going on there with the superintendent. 
Yeah, so Dr. Jara has been the superintendent of the Clark County School District since June 2018, came from the Orlando area school district. He's ruffled some feathers a few times for sure over these past two years, um, specifically last summer. He really upset a lot of people by making a decision to cut deans. It was sort of this unilateral decision that people said didn't really involve enough educators or students, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have, we're dealing with a possible teacher strike last year. So anyway, like there's been a number of things. Well, then you add the COVID pandemic on top of this, tensions have boiled over even more. Specifically, it came to a head with the special session earlier this month. Uh, there was this bill called Assembly Bill 2, which would have uh, redistributed some of the un- unspent funds at individual schools. And basically the governor and state superintendent and legislatures accused him of being dishonest and trying to deflect responsibility for the the bill, even though supposedly it was the district that originally asked for it. So there's been all this brouhaha back and forth. Meanwhile, a few of the trustees, one in particular, Trustee Daniel Ford, has never really gotten along with him. It's obvious in different board meetings. The reopening plans, I think, have frustrated some of the the trustees because there hasn't necessarily been the information provided in a timely manner to them or what they perceive as enough information to make all these decisions. So you add the special session drama to that and it basically just boiled over. So last week, three trustees, trustees Daniel Ford, Linda Cavazos and Linda Young requested a special board meeting to essentially discuss Dr. Jar's future. So by, by law, if three trustees request the meeting, It'll be calendarized. It hasn't been scheduled yet as far as I know, but we're probably looking at that in the next few weeks. Interestingly, yesterday, some local elected officials sent the board a letter backing Dr. Jara. So it was signed by the mayors of Las Vegas, Henderson, and North Las Vegas, as well as the Clark County Commission chair. So there's a lot of dynamics at play. I don't know. I'm not a fortune reader. I have no idea how this will <laughs> land. <laughs> and um, I think when the meeting does occur, like all the other school board meetings, we're in for a long night. I don't think it'll probably be resolved in that night. So I don't think people should expect to see that. But you know, it's one more wrinkle in just the complicated situation that is public education in Southern Nevada right now. <laughs> <laughs> you sound a little exasperated, Jackie. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, Never a dull moment, I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just to kind of finish up, you know, there's 17 school districts in the state other than Clark County. Have any of them released plans or, or are they thinking about what they're going to do? Washoe County kind of seems like generally follows suit with whatever Clark County is doing, although uh, we do have fewer cases up here in northern Nevada. So Yeah, so Washoe County originally said that they were going to pursue a hybrid model, I believe. Mm-hmm. Theirs was slightly different because they we're going to have uh, elementary students in school full time because they thought they could meet the physical distance guidelines. I've seen some calls for them to change that. Some community members who are saying, hey, look, cases are rising. We're not sure that's such a great idea. So I I would say that's probably not firm yet. We'll see as it gets a little bit closer what they ultimately decide. My colleague and I, Jasmine, are working on a separate story about the rural districts so we're trying to hash that out all right now as well. So stay tuned. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for staying up late for these long school board meetings, Jackie. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about 
plans to open up schools or, or, or not open up schools coming soon. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. And just a, a quick plug to our listeners. Uh, feel free to always you know, drop me a line via social media or via email if you want to talk more about education or hear something. I, I love getting the perspective of educators, parents, students, etc. so that we're not always just focusing on the school board, superintendent, etc. So please feel free to always reach out. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast, and I am joined by our wonderful intern, Tabitha. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? You know, can't I'm complain. Good. So we've had some time to, to, you know, read and watch movies, and we, we normally talk about movies and stuff, but we're doing an indie read segment this week, so we're talking about what we're reading, and we feel like, you know, you guys read the news so much, and, you know, you read our website, and we really appreciate that. You shouldn't stop doing that, but also you should be well-read in other things as well, and so we're going to give you some book recommendations of what us here at the Indie are reading. And so Tabitha, what are you what are you reading? Yeah, so I really like to kind of alternate nonfiction and fiction just because it gives me a good it's a nice change of pace depending on what I'm feeling in the mood for. So there have been kind of three that I read recently. One of them was The Warmth of Other Suns. It's with the subtitle The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. And it's a history and kind of a study by of the Great Migration as African Americans moved from the South to the North. And just like absolutely stunning. If you love oral history, she interviewed thousands of people, I think about 1,200 people for the story, and then weaves in data, statistics, and then pulls out these individual narratives of specific people that she interviewed. So the book kind of intertwines this general history and statistical analysis with biographies of a sharecropper's wife who left Mississippi in the 1930s for Chicago, and then an agricultural worker who left Florida for New York City in the 40s. And then a doctor who left Louisiana in the 50s to go to Los Angeles. And it's just this incredible story that we just don't learn about in history class at all. And yeah, so 10 out of 10 would recommend that one. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So I have a nonfiction recommendation as well, which is Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by uh, James Agee and Walker Evans. And it's two journalists, photojournalists in the 30s and 40s, also talking about sharecropping actually in the South. And it's kind of about wealth inequality, and it's, it's pretty dense. And I think at the beginning, there's kind of this long essay about kind of the ethics of journalism and how like you can never convey everything, so how do you convey something accurately? So that's been very interesting to read like as someone who works in the media. But yeah, it's a good book. It, I mean, it, it definitely paints a very interesting picture of like the, the, the huge disparity in wealth in the 30s and 40s, and you can kind of draw parallels to today in some ways, in some ways you know, sharecropping is not really a thing anymore. But yeah, so it's a good book. I would check it out. It's a, it's a real thick book though, but there are some, also some amazing photographs in it because he was, James Agee was a photographer as well. And so you also said you read some fiction, right? Like you like to alternate. So what's your fiction? Yeah. So the fiction book that I've been reading recently is History of Love. (laughs) Nicole Krauss is the author. And if you've ever read Dave Eggers, he's another writer. And I would definitely call this like a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. I was an English major along an English and geography major. And so this book is really cool because it's very postmodern and it sort of plays with narrative form, but it's absolutely stunning. The writing is beautiful. It weaves together this like story of Leo Gursky, who's an 80 year old Holocaust survivor from Slonim, and then a young Alma Slinger who's kind of coping with the death of her father and the story of a lost manuscript, which is also called the history of love. 
and it just is poignant and beautiful. And if you're looking for something that sort of just lets you immerse yourself in language and in a totally different world, I would highly recommend it. All right. And and my fiction recommendation would be Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. I might have brought this up in the last indie reads we did like months ago that I was planning on reading this and I finally got around to reading it and it's a long book and I'm almost done with it. But yeah, Cormac McCarthy, uh, you know, like The Road, No Country for Old Men, pretty prolific Western writer. Um, I feel like this is kind of his final form, even though it was written in like 85, I think. But it's, it takes place in the 1800s. It's about kind of this band of, of men who go to northern Mexico. It's very brutal. It's very bloody and gory. Um, but it's a little bit more, it feels like a very long poem. It's very beautifully written. I mean, it definitely kind of goes into describing the desert and kind of the, the hardships that people face just kind of traveling through the desert and the mountains. And uh, I think it's pretty good. So no, I'll check that out. The other one that just recently came out that I finished is Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist. Mm-hmm. And Why Fish Don't Exist is a brand new write-off. I mean, it just was recently released. And it's uh, kind of a look at a lot of different aspects, but it's part biography, part memoir. And it's she's a science reporter for NPR. And so okay. that's another one that I would, if you're looking for a new book in the more not fiction, but nonfiction realm, I'd recommend that one. Well, I love Lulu Miller, so I'll definitely have to check that out. She's fantastic. I had never really heard of her till the book came out, and then I was listening to her. She also does Invisibil- Invisibilia, mm-hmm. which is a yeah. podcast. So, Yeah, so we'll have to do a podcast recommendation on the podcast of other podcasts at some point. <laughs> if that's not too meta for anyone. <laughs> exactly. All right, Tabs. Well, thank you for giving us some book recommendations. Indie readers, please get out there and read some books other than the news. It's important to kind of disconnect sometimes especially in these times so yeah good for your sanity (laughs) exactly exactly well thanks for being on tabs and thanks for having me thank you for listening to this episode of indie matters we'd like to thank michelle rundells riley snyder jackie valley tabitha mueller and megan messerly for being on the podcast this week if you like listening to the podcast consider leaving a rating on apple podcasts or wherever else you listen if you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email me at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>